You are listening to the Big Blue Rock Pod, produced by the Kentucky Geological Survey at the University of Kentucky. This podcast is a fun, conversational approach to discussing all things geology and earth processes. We primarily focus on Kentucky. We talk emerging ideas and research, along with classic topics in earth science for all levels of interest. Let's do the show! Hello and welcome back to the Big Blue Rock Pod. I'm Matt Crawford, along with my co-hosts, Doug Curl and Sarah Arpin. Hey, Matt. Good morning. Happy New Year. Uh, Happy New Year. Yeah. We can officially say it. Happy New Year to all yeah. our millions of listeners. Oh, how long you're supposed <laughs> to say around Happy the world. New Year, but yeah. It's <laughs> early January. We can do it, mid-January. Yeah. So today's topic is climate change. I feel like, you know, start off the new year with something challenging and complex and a bit out of our wheelhouse and, you know, a polarizing topic sometimes. Um, and I feel like, you know, we wanted to do this, I think, because as earth scientists and geologists, we've had to reframe a lot of how we approach somewhat traditional topics in geology, how we rethink geologic hazards and mapping and natural resources and landscape evolution, geohealth, all these things. Like you've got to kind of have an added element of, uh, climate science in there, um, how we think about these phenomena. So before we get it, we can get into all that. Uh, let's first introduce our guest. It's Professor Alice Turkington with the University of Kentucky Department of Geography. Um, Alice has research interest in geomorphology, weathering, stone decay. We should maybe get into stone decay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Biogeomorphology. Um, she teaches a, a class on climate change, so we thought Alice would be a great guest. So Alice, welcome here. Um, thank you. And maybe describe what you do to our audience. Thank you. I'm happy to be here with you. So I am an associate professor of geography here at the University of Kentucky, um, and I'm a geomorphologist. So my research yeah. has always been looking at landscape development, and I'm particularly interested in the interface between the rocks and the atmosphere. So some of my research has considered boundary level climates, um, microclimatology, how that works, and then looking at the processes of stone breakdown and applying that to understand how the larger landscape has evolved. And as you noted, some of that research has led me to look at the decay of stone monuments, cultural stone, um, both here and back in Europe. But more recently, um, I really wanted to focus my attention on education and education about climate change. So I've been here 20 plus years and um, I've been teaching about climate change all that time. And I have become increasingly concerned about the lack of understanding about climate change among our student population. And so I've I've really focused my efforts recently on that type of education. And so I've been teaching a number of different classes on climate change here on campus and, um, re, you know, working alongside members of the Kentucky Climate Change Consortium, um, which is a broader group um, across the state and working with them to kind of outreach and explain our research. Yeah. So here, like we usually do, we start out, start out simple. And since you are focused on education, I think that's perfect. I mean, um, so what, what is climate change? <laughs> is that simple yeah let's go okay so we are um when we're talking about climate change right now we're talking about recent climate change so rather than paleoclimates rather than thinking about the ice ages or anything earlier than that we're thinking about recent climate change in the last 50 to 100 years where the climate has been affected by the changing the atmospheric composition so the increase in carbon in the atmosphere has caused overall warming and a number of other effects in the climate. So that is the climate change that we're referring to. Recent since? 150, 200 years ago. Okay, yeah. yeah. At the outset. Most of the definitions I saw in, in papers and like NASA's website or the UN or something basically described it as long-term shifts in temperature and weather patterns. Okay. Um, and so describing average change over time with, uh, over long periods of time with temperature, precipitation, wind, whatever, whatever that may yeah. be. Yeah. So really the, the weather, the meteorological part of it, right, there's shifts in those patterns and how, what the storm tracks are, um, how long the storm season may last, those things are all affected. But when we take, think about climate change science, it's a little broader than simply the meteorological effects. It also includes the movement of carbon through the atmosphere and the biosphere and the lithosphere. Mm. Um, it includes the actions of people in um, com consuming fossil fuels and co converting that to atmospheric carbon. So the climate 
climate change um, science really involves the carbon cycle, the water cycle, you know, a, a slightly broader view really of this. Yes. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, so it's, it's, it's the burning of fossil fuels in, let's say, call a recent time, 150, 200 years, um, that generates greenhouse gases. Those gases sort of blanket the earth, trap heat, and um, this human activity is, is warmed the earth. Is that, is that yes. accurate? Yes, warmed it up by, I think, to date since 200 years ago, about 1.2 degrees Celsius, um, which is a very rapid rate of change. It doesn't sound like a big difference, but 20,000 years ago when we were in an ice age period, it was only about four degrees colder. So 1.2 degrees warmer is quite a big jump. And then 150 years or whatever. Right, yeah. in, in a century or two. 1.1 yes. 1. Yeah. 1 Celsius is about 2.0 Fahrenheit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's significant. And we uh, just to point out the thing about the 150 years, it's rise of the Industrial Revolution. and That's correct. Yeah. Use of carbon, I guess, for fuels. And and they've shi shifted from that terminology of just global warming to climate change to sort of encompass all of these systems that are affected that you, you mentioned. Right. right. So, yeah, there was a time when we talked about global warming. Now we realize that really it's the impact on the water cycle that's probably the most you know, significant hazard. And really more recently, rather than climate change, we talk about climate crisis, you know, it's, it's more the terminology is even updated to kind of recognize the impact that's already there. Yeah, that's, that's important. I mean, it can have, people can latch onto it as a negative thing. Oh, you're changing the terms. But we learn more as we go along. So yeah. you've got to update terminology too. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I have a few notes on that. Um, but geologists love to do this too, right? Like we change, you know, well, it's not the geology security. <laughs> it's not the geology department anymore. It's the earth and environmental sciences department. Okay, that's fine. It's good. But, right, which is a better reflection of what you do, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Those those changes make sense because, yeah. like you said, I mean, it's you know, it's a part of your greater understanding and yeah. broader thinking, I guess. About yeah, yeah, and I think an understanding of the role that human activity has on changing our Earth's surface and atmosphere is really important. I mean, recently I saw a version of the hydrological cycle from the geological survey mm -hmm. that had human activity as part of it. So. It didn't have caves, though. Didn't have caves. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, we had a discussion about that. <laughs> but it was, a, it was a good diagram, though. It was. It, yeah, yes. finally had human mm. yeah, interaction. Yeah. There. Uh, I jotted down... The new normal. You hear the new normal a lot. Is that is that an uh, acceptable term? Is it people should use that? I mean, you can. It, it, <laughs> it conveys, I suppose, that there is a change, a shift in the system. Um, I don't know that. No, and normal also it conveys that we're not going back to where we were. Right, that so, so we are not reversing back to some kind of pre-industrial idea. That's not happening. So I think yes, that that does convey that idea fairly well. But the changes continue, and the situation is dynamic. I think at, at this point. You hinted on this sort of in the beginning there, but what what is the difference between weather and climate, and how should we think about think about that difference? So when we talk about the weather, we're talking about current conditions and very short term shifts in those conditions, like pressure systems coming through and storms acting, um, and those conditions are determined by you know the kind of atmospheric conditions across the planet, which is very dynamic and and fluctuates in short term, and we can predict that within a few days, maybe a few weeks. The climate is the long-term average of those conditions. And typically, we have to have at least 30 years of record to be able to talk about the climate of a particular place. Um, and the, you know, we usually um, in climate science, we're referring to the past 30 years as our, our climate conditions of, of a location. Okay. So it's the average of that time. Is that why the, the climate normals are 30-year averages? That's correct. Yeah. That's your minimum uh, length of time. Because there's such variability in the weather, we have to have a long-term mm -hmm. record. Um, to kind of in incorporate all that. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting that weather is the short-term conditions in our atmosphere, what the rain's doing today, the storm coming or whatever. Uh, but the long-term changes with regard to climate um, and identifying unusual patterns in long-term changes can be different area to area, right? So if you're in Russia, right, you're, you, you're going to, incur differences in 
you know, impacts of climate change versus like in South America, right? So it's specific to an area. The impact is specific to an area for long-term yeah, changes. that's correct. And the, the place that we're seeing the most rapid changes and the biggest impacts are in the Arctic Circle. And the warming there has been very rapid. So our average warming is about 1.2 degrees Celsius. Their warming has been 4 to 5 degrees. Wow. Which is oh, significant. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Yeah, so some parts there are, are seeing very quick changes um, in, in how the landscape reacts, right? The cryosphere, the ice is melting, the sea ice is retreating. So it's, it's quite a dramatic impact in their biosphere. Um, so yes, depending on where you are, in some places in, in North America, a, a very kind of quick and easy way to think of it is that wet places are getting wetter, dry places are getting drier, and you know, hot places are getting hotter, and so the, the extremes are pushing up. And so when we look at a 30-year record, we have a very wide range of conditions. And here in Kentucky, we're very familiar, right, with going from negative degrees one day mm. to 60 mm. degrees. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. so, so we have a very, a, a very large range and a variability in our climate. And so as the average changes, that range is still there, but the range slowly pushes to the higher end of the temperature scale. So the extremes at the high end of the temperature are more frequent. And that I think is where, you know, we have to try and understand. It doesn't mean that cold winters are no longer, but it does mean that those extremes are more likely. Uh, well, so that, yeah, that's a good segue into this next, you know, bit of stuff I wanted to get to. What are key climate change indicators? I listed a bunch of stuff. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna read these and we, maybe we can pick one or okay. two to... To unpack if we if we want to, so key climate change indicators. I think so. These are things that tell us about human induced climate change. Is that what you're? Yeah, like so. Al Alice yeah. mentioned the, the rapid warming in the Arctic. Like that's yeah. that's one indicator. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So um, land surface air temperature, sea surface temperature, air temperature over the oceans, lower troposphere temperature. The troposphere is the lowest part of the atmosphere. Correct. Um, ocean heat content, sea level, specific humidity, glaciers, uh, northern hemisphere snow cover, Arctic sea ice. So indicators, right, like, like your question, Doug, is like th these things, the changes in these when we look phenomena at the, are... The long-term records of these, then, yeah. T take that where you will, Alice. Um, okay. So I think um, one of the first and most obvious indicators that the climate was changing um, to people came from glaciologists, right, who were looking at glacial retreat in high alpine environments. And across the globe, with a few exceptions, glaciers have been in retreat. And so they're shrinking, they're moving up the mountain, there's less meltwater coming off them every year. And that is a very obvious indicator. In fact, in Glacial National Park, those glaciers are really small right yes. now. If they're just some of them are disappearing. They're just cirques left yeah. at the you know, tops of mountains. And so that, that's a place to go sooner rather than later if you'd like to see a glacier. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the most obvious one is um, the land air temperature, right? So air temperature. So when we've always known that we're talking about a warming effect, right? So a trapping of heat in the troposphere causing the Earth's surface to warm up. And so on average, things are getting warmer. Um, and that means that we have more extreme heat events. And that, I think, is kind of a key indicator where you see heat waves that would have been the one in 1,000 year event occurring several times in a decade. And heat waves that are fairly catastrophic becoming the norm. And the overall summer temperature is becoming hotter and hotter. And that, of course, combines with a situation which you have in, say, our urban areas, our big cities, where temperatures are much higher inside the city. So we have an urban heat island effect where the temperatures can be um, much higher in the city than they are in the surrounding countryside. And the people living in the parts of the city where there's not much green space, where the temperatures are intense, tend to be the people with less ability to be resilient against those temperatures. So let's take, for example, Louisville. Louisville has a very intense heat island. It's about 11 degrees warmer on a hot summer day than it would be around um, the Ohio River Valley. Is that one of the worst, I think, yes. in oh, wow. the United States? One of the most notable in the United really? States, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yes. It's, and it be, it's because it really doesn't have much green tree canopy in the city. So it's fairly dense. And the downtown area, which is an old industrial area, 
um, it has a lot of people living there of lower socioeconomic status who don't really have the facilities to deal with very high temperatures. So they're they're under a lot of stress when those heat waves occur. And so you have this combination of a, his, a historical legacy of a kind of a redlining effect in putting certain populations downtown, combined with you know the urban surface being pretty high absorbing of heat uh, and there not being much cooling effect of trees or green space. Um, and so all of those things combine to stress a particular population in the downtown Louisville area uh, because of the heat. So it's related to climate change, but there are a number of factors playing yeah. into that situation, that hazard. Yeah, I, I was going to mention the glaciers too, because glaciers are, right, they're tangible, they're visible. You can you can see what's happening there. Um, I d stumbled on this the other day from the Washington Post. It was just like a week or so ago. Uh, they did a study, someone, oh, science, someone in published an article in Science, a sweeping study of all the world's glaciers outside of Greenland and Antarctica, so alpine glaciers, found that nearly half of them will melt by century's end, even if we meet the uh, most ambitious global warming mitigation goals. Uh, so they found that even with just 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming above pre-industrial levels, some 104,000 of the world's more than 215,000 alpine glaciers will melt. Uh, raising global sea levels by a little shy of four inches. And that just sounds, you know, Yeah, crazy. half of the glaciers will disappear. Right. That's a big shift. And I think um, that and then your northern hemisphere snow cover, um, this is something we were kind of talking about. Doug mentioned the Alps. Um, but in the western United States, how significant those water storage components are to downstream water supply um, and so like to think about the impact, um, in the drier Western United States, when you don't have that stored component of water providing downstream water during drier times of the year. So it becomes water availability issues, all these other yeah. compounding factors. That's what I was going to say about, about this list of indicators, right? Land surface, air temperature, sea surface temperature, all that, that list, right? They're just, the analogy I read was these are bricks in a wall and you have to look at the wall as a whole to get the picture and because these are all variables and sure you can say that land surface air temperature is varied over time. Like it's not, it's not ubiquitous. Right. Um, and so you got to look at these other things to get all, you know, get all that data together to, to get the picture. And, and so it's not just pointing to one thing. Um, and if you look at all that together, you can accept, I think, that this is a problem yes, <laughs> or it real. Is a problem. And I, I think Doug makes a great point that it's you. we have always experienced extreme events. So we've always had storms in December or a drought situation for a while out west. But climate change makes all of those things worse and they make them more extreme and they make them happen more frequently. And so it's not a separate issue. And we may have always had some of these hazards for sure, but the climate change, sh the gradual shift has exacerbated those problems. And, yes. and their impacts are not simply due to the climate, but they're certainly, that's part of the story. Um, and the impacts are current, like they're not in the future anymore and they're here. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah it's funny because, you know, we talk about the climate versus weather and, you know, the, this comes into the climate skepticism and things, but, you know, people say, well, you can't just look at one year of, of, you know, bad ski season or something. It's like, well, but we've had, you know, 10 <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, um, we've had heat waves every summer for the yeah. past, whatever. So at some point you have to say, yes, you do. There's an issue. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. And um, I, I feel this like on a personal level, I've been teaching about climate change since 2001 when I arrived here. And each year I'll have slides that I'll show my students saying, this is the records that were broken this year. It's been the hottest year it's in this place. It's been the driest year. And every year I have another, another, mm. another. And so it, we keep breaking our own records. And yeah. so even in that 20 year period, the change has been dramatic. And the amount of carbon in the atmosphere when I started teaching about this was 380 parts per million. Now it's 420. That's a very large increase. And so the, the changes have been like I've watched them and narrated them for 20 years and they're, they're really noticeable for yeah, sure. Yeah. Actually, can we talk a little bit how we measure the carbon? Because I find that really interesting. I once went to the, there's a place where they store ice core in Denver. I don't know if you've ever been there, but 
It's very cool. The US, that USGS? Uh, USGS. Yeah. yeah, it's actually an NSF facility at the USGS. But anyway. Super cool. Um, but have you been there? No, but I want to go. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if you get a chance, it's, it's very cool. But um, So you go in and they have the ice core um, that they've collected from Antarctica and Greenland and uh, elsewhere. But um, uh, And it's you go into one room and it's cold and then you go into the other room where they, the long-term storage and it's extremely cold. So it's, it's a pretty neat place, but, um, they gave a presentation and they showed the, the hockey stick, you know, these carbon measurements come mostly from ice core. Is that correct? Or, well, we've been measuring the carbon in the atmosphere since the 1950s. But oh, okay. Yeah. Prior to yeah, that. Yes. Yeah. It comes oh, from a various, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, but it's just a very dramatic, presentation and you realize you're sitting there with you know all this data i guess is the i mean for somebody who's interested in data it's it's very exciting in course we like course yeah Yeah, it's like oh i'm i'm right here with this data that's showing you know this huge shift in and carbon output into the atmosphere and um you know these ice core go uh you know i don't know how far they I can't remember how far they go back, but they're much longer than 150 years. And so, right. are they all from Antarctica? Um, there might be green. I don't. I don't green, know. Green, if there's green yeah. I think the but, oldest yeah. ice from Antarctica we've caught is about 800,000 years old. Okay. Right? Yeah. So, so oh, wow. yeah. Yeah. So there's that you get that record. record and this the we call it the hockey stick, I guess. So mm-hmm. you know, it's this. Yeah. I'm doing this with my finger. Now, I was, was going to ask yeah. Alice about about this. The ho- the hockey stick plot was like the first thing that stuck in my mind when. I don't know what, I guess when climate change and climate science was really ramping up, like, you know, Al Gore was talking about it a lot. And oh, right. Yeah. I don't know if Michael Mann was the first person to plot, but it was, it's a plot of global temperature fluctuation since like 1000, year, mm-hmm. year 1000. So it's a broad look at global temperature. Uh-huh. And the end of the plot just goes skyrockets up, right? So that's the, the shape of the hockey stick. But it, it also was, a simple plot but it was also for some reason got very controversial and people were like oh you just can't you just can't look at global temperature like that and you know because things change right right naturally things change with all kinds of cycles that we mentioned earlier i don't know is that why was that controversial (laughs) so is that a is that a pot of carbon or is it pot of temperature i thought Um, it was temperature I think I've seen both okay. and, and both oh. show the same pattern, okay. right? They're, yeah. they're yeah. kind of variable along a baseline right. until yeah. about 1970s and then they shoot up yeah. very, very quickly and temperature's gone up very rapidly since then. Um, but carbon has notably gone up from, you know, below 300 parts per million to now 420. So that's the hockey stick kind of end of that okay. yeah. sudden yeah. increase going up. Um, and I think it was controversial because um, we didn't want to do anything about it. That's my guess. Mm. And it's, you know, we've really, we've known since James Hansen's um, hearings in Congress in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Again, as you mentioned, working with Al Gore, they've talked about this is what's going to happen, right? We know that carbon is increasing. We know what the potential impacts will be. They presented that to the U.S. government and we have done nothing since then. Now, there's a lot to that story, but yeah. that's the kind of the bare bones of it is that we've not really taken dramatic steps to change our infrastructure, our consumption of energy and so on. What we've done, the, in the total carbon in the atmosphere that we've put in there, of the total amount that humans have added, half of it has been added in the last 30 years. And so 30 years ago, we knew what the impacts would be, and we have since then doubled the carbon in the atmosphere. So things are not going according to plan if you're yeah. concerned about <laughs> science and, and the climate. But um, and that change is really rapid and, and it continues to be so because so much of the world continues to rapidly need more energy. And, you know, there's there's some real questions there about how what's going to happen in the next even few decades. Yeah. I mean, the knock on the hockey stick was that there's there are other natural long term oscillations right, in cycles. So, you know, you, you can't just you can't just look at that. But as far as I know, the hockey stick's still standing or it's still a stick. It's you know, still, it's still there. It's still so. going up. In fact, it's the, the carbon is kind of off the page now yeah, compared right. to where it was before. Right. Yeah. The presentation they give at that facility is very impressive. And, and I, I don't mean to geek out like on the data part, but but it's all about data, man. Yeah. That was the you know, I've I'd seen I've seen this over and over again, but I guess when you're 
when you're sitting there and you're like, oh, okay. So, right. Slowly. And it's that, that data has developed the whole story. And mm-hmm. that it, what always strikes me is the effort that goes into that. Like you're going right. to the South Pole <laughs> to yeah. drill ice and right. then you're coming back to analyze. It and you're like, I mean, it's really a very intensive field experience mm-hmm. to try and get that information. Yeah. But it has yeah. been the bedrock of this mm-hmm. scientific mm-hmm. movement yeah. to understand yeah. climate change. Mm-hmm. So, we mentioned compound events. And um, I stumbled on a few articles and papers about this term com- compound event. So I just, I'll just read this definition and maybe Alice, you can take it where you will. A compound event with regard to climate change. We're talking about a combination of, a combination of processes. Doug, you mentioned this earlier too. So combination of processes, meaning climate drivers and hazards uh, that lead to significant impact and societal and environmental risk. That's sort of the, the definition. So for example, a hazard would be a drought or a flood or a landslide. Um, but the drivers would be precipitation, evapotranspiration, soil moisture, uh, fluctuations in temperature over time. And so thinking about and realizing these combinations of processes leads to some of the stuff we've we've mentioned already, larger and costlier hurricanes, more frequent hurricanes, all, all these impacts, right? storm surges, floods, fires, droughts, wildfires. Uh, so, is that is that a approach or kind of foundation to look at climate change, climate science? Yeah, and I think we have to look at it that way because um, we the hazards that we are really being impacted by. Let's take for example. Um, a storm surge, right, from a hurricane where it pushes the sea level up temporarily and that floods the coastline. Um, that's a fairly catastrophic event. And that's been happening, of course, you know, all through the time that we've had hurricanes. But the driver for that, for each individual storm, right, as, as you described, relates to those particular atmospheric conditions, which in some cases might lead to a storm to kind of be stationary close to the coastline and cause more damage, or it might connect with another pressure system like Hurricane Sandy did and intensify and be very broad. So those particular um, short-term conditions all impact the storm. But in the background, there are the climate drivers, which in this case would be a slowly rising sea level, right? Glaciers are melting, the sea level is higher. So when the storm surge comes, it's larger. And um, that kind of is the, the how the, these things intersect. So you have the, the short-term impact of the storm, which, as you say, has more water now because the ocean is warmer and you know has more energy because there's higher rates of condensation. So that is combining with the longer-term impact of the slowly rising sea level. Sea level is a great example of you know how it's difficult to think about the impacts of climate change because it's it's kind of the analogy is, you know, the frog in the boiling water. If you slowly rate the mm-hmm. temperature, it doesn't get out. But if you suddenly hit it with hot water, it'll move. Um, and it's like that where people living on the coastline are used to periodic flooding and the, and the slow creep of the incursion of the salt water. Um, it's, it's just being dealt with on a kind of individual or case by case, community by community basis. But we're not really addressing it in a large scale. Um, but it's impacting people and the and the floods are big and there are now climate change refugees where their communities have actually become inundated by water. And so again, we're not as a at a state level or a federal level, we're not having a we're not moving very fast to develop policy to deal with that uh, because it's a very slow moving event and we tend to think that it's a future event, but however, it's it's really here right now and it's impacting people on the coastline. Yeah, you mentioned Sandy and and when I was jotting my notes down, Harvey, Hurricane Harvey came to mind for me. I mean, that was wild. And I, I think that huge area of coastline along Texas got 40 inches of rain in- It would have been 50, yeah. It was 50 in, like in, that's what, in a day or two. Which is that's, what we get in a year. That's what we get in a year in Kentucky. Yeah. And so that that was, a, I guess, your drivers there are higher sea surface temperatures, um, warmer ocean, just more moisture. More moisture. And then the particular conditions that allowed it to be stationary for the whole weekend- Yes, right over the city. It, it just didn't it, move. It stayed yeah. there. Yeah. Well, co- and combined with well, what became tragic as well was it was over Houston and the the way that they've been planning their urban development. They allowed a lot of building on floodplains, and that was part of the why it became so catastrophic because they had allowed 
building on areas that were marked as the one in 100 year flood and they weren't well drained and you know the reservoir weren't big enough to hold that size of a flood and so there were a few human factors that impacted communities there too somewhat unrelated but um when you mentioned salt water something that i i found i fell down a wormhole at one point on the on the internet but ghost forests of the eastern united states and so thinking about all these other um impacts that and the number of seen and unseen consequences, I guess. So if you Google these ghost forests, I mean, it's it's a bizarre uh, environment. So the, as the sea level rises, um, the salt water, of course, that, that groundwater like comes up in the soil. And so it kills the forests that can't handle that salt water. They need mm. the fresh water. And these forests are trying to retreat then back away from the coastline. But the sea level is rising quicker than the forest can retreat and so like we're also looking at you know probably like extinctions and things like that events where, where vegetation biosphere again is affected and all that habitat as well so now you just have all these dead dead trees i mean it's yeah. to, to look at the photos it's i mean it sounds it looks like what it sounds like it's a ghost forest it's like these crazy big dead, big trees just yeah. dead yeah. yeah no bark on them anymore like gray wasteland right. kind of yeah. yeah they are creepy looking yeah so it's very sad and i, I just think that the effects are far more than we just grasp at surface level. Probably more. Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah, you mentioned earlier, like, uh, groundwater quality and availability, availability right? Yeah, and so all those kinds of things with sea level rise, with a, a wetter southeastern U.S., increasing temperatures, um, extreme rainfall events, right? They're, they're affecting... Natural built environments, agriculture, forestry, um, energy, right? So all these sectors are are impacted. One thing I was going to say, kind of, I guess, kind of related to talking about compound events or thinking about it as, as compound events, was the July twenty two Eastern Kentucky flooding. Mm -hmm. It just came out in, in the Herald Leader the other day, but probably other places as well, as as uh, a billion dollar disaster. It it wow. reached that threshold. In 2022, the United States has had $18 billion disasters. So floods, droughts, wildfires, right? Hurricanes. Totaling uh, $165 billion, uh, which is a quite a significant increase from 2021. I don't have the 2021 number. Hurricane Ian was the most costly at $113 billion. The point in mentioning that, I guess, is is uh, a lot of the questions we fielded here after that event was like, how how does this how, how does the July flood point to climate change, and can you say something about climate change with this one event? It's hard hard question to answer, and sort of like you said already, like no, you can't always necessarily point to one event, but again, it's it's the the bricks in the wall, right? right. It's it's the hazard and the drivers. Right. Right. And if we think about um, rainfall in Kentucky, for example, like our average has increased yes. quite a bit, right? So that means we have some dry years and some wet years. Our wet years are much wetter. And so the extremes are higher. So yes, we can have extreme floods and, and high rainfall events. We always have. But if the average is moving up, then you know, the 50% above the average is getting bigger and that top nine, you know, the top 90% plus that is getting more extreme. And so that pushes the extremes up even more. And then, in, of course, in eastern Kentucky, the landscape itself is, you know, prone to rapid flash flooding. Um, mm -hmm. and, and the people there, you know, they've lived with floods, but they've never seen anything quite like that. And that really was catastrophic oh, yeah. for those communities. Yes. And so it's it's not the traditional approach of preparing for single events like yeah like you said people along the coast are kind of used to the flooding every now and then or used to a storm surge but we have to not think about things like that uh, right as just sort of the single event right right and i think we have to looking forward understand that this is going to keep happening so what will we how will we manage it so let's say you're living in Miami, down on the coastline. And even on a very sunny day where it hasn't rained for a week, water's coming up through the storm drain, right? So the high tide floods the city. And so their approach is to 
engineer the way out of that essentially, right? To put in better drainage, to pump water, to take it out with, you know, one-way valves so it can't come back in. So even though the street, they've lifted the streets up really high so the shop fronts are now below the sidewalk um, and they're trying to raise things up above this rising sea level. And then for those who are still living down close to that level, they'll pump water out and try to keep it out, right? So walls are higher, you know, more effective pumps. So there's billions of dollars being spent on these engineering solutions. And I guess in that context, I have a little cognitive dissonance there where I'm like, well, the scene's not going to go back down. So <laughs> at what point do you just get out of this? But there are, you know, million dollar penthouse apartments built right there. So they want to try and keep the economy thriving in that area. And, you know, there's an ideology, there's one ideology that says we should retreat from the coastline, right? We should move backwards. And there's another that we will hold the line and protect the people and everything that's there. And, you know, I can see the arguments for both, right? There's yeah. a lot of cultural and history in places like, for example, New Orleans, we want to maintain that, you know, that means a lot to those people. And there's not an easy fix to moving that. But on the other hand, you'll have, you know, communities like in New Jersey, where they're just pummeled by storms year after year. And there is a good argument for taking a community and relocating them inland to a safer, higher place. Um, and so there's, you know, there's a lot of questions around how to do that. And we've had to relocate some communities in Louisiana wh who live on the Delta, where their their landscape has just gone underwater completely. And who does that cost fall on? How do they deal with that? So the one example I'm thinking of um, are, were the people who lived on the Ile de Jean Charles, and they were, um, their island had shrunk all the way down from about eight miles long to about a quarter of a mile. There was, there had been a natural migration out of the island by young people, but they were awarded a grant from FEMA right, to relocate. And so it was kind of an experiment where they were, FEMA sponsored about 10 different communities and hundreds applied to get into this, but about 10 people were um, successful and they were allowed to plan their own community, choose the location and build another community where they had not just homes, but, you know, community center schools and everything else. So they were allowed to move, but the whole community had to agree to go to do that. And so FEMA paid for that. And the Louisiana state government sponsored it as well because they were trying to think ahead for what would they do. Um, but there were a lot of communities who applied for that. For example, in Alaska, there was a community who are living on the coastline. The sea ice has melted and their coastline is eroding very quickly. So their houses are falling into the ocean. They were not successful in getting that grant. They haven't been able to move. And so they're stuck. And so it depends on which example you look at. Some are quite successful, some not so much. But you're right. That is a very expensive um, relocation. And, and you can't do that for everyone. But there needs to be some forethought into what can we do, I think. Yeah. I mean, the same things happen in eastern Kentucky right now. What what do we do with a lot of these people who have, there's some sensitivity to cultural history and heritage and living, living where they do, but can we move them to higher ground? Should we move them to higher ground? How, who bears that cost? All of complicated questions. Yeah. And I, I think eventually the continual recovery and rebuilding is more expensive than the relocation, but it's hard to make that argument mm. with the expense up front. Yeah, yeah. To make that for sure. Yeah. Just the other, I saw a report about, I think they're building new storm surge, these big storm surge gates outside of, I think it's Galveston Bay. Uh -huh. Maybe to, um, you know, they can close them when there's a storm coming. And it just got me thinking, you know, it seems like a good idea. It got me thinking, how much engineering is enough? And how do you make that determination? Because, you know, the I know the, the Dutch have been doing this as well. And we I think we're, there's a similar system being developed in New York or, yeah, um, yeah. Mm. but it's, you know, if you don't come, like, we're going to talk about solutions. Yeah. If you don't come up with a solution, you're never going to be able to engineer your, yourself out of these things. Cause you know, it's, it's in my mind, it's never going to be enough. I mean, I guess there is a limit. You yeah. Know, I think so at some point, but, and even, you know, there's lots of people that model resiliency. I don't know. You know, mm -hmm. that just seems like a super challenging thing with with uh, with climate change. It is challenging. But in, in the climate science, you see that increasingly that to, to look at, for example, a place where um, there may be multiple storm surges and we're looking at communities and how to help them, that the analysis doesn't simply look at where does the water go in terms of the height of the water. It overlays that with 
what is the social and economic resilience of that community? So if that is a very um, high income community, we can allow them to flood and they'll be able to rebuild themselves. But if it's not, then we need to think about how we interact with that community and how we support them in their rescue and recovery efforts and, and rebuilding efforts, because that's quite di- those are two quite different scenarios. Yeah. And so we can no longer just look at floodplain limits. We need to think about who are the people and what's contributing to their community resiliency. And that can include even things like, you know, the extent to which they're all um, first language is English or, you know, not just the amount of income that they have, but their own family structures, you know, their own lives and how that interacts with their, when they meet a hazard, what they can and cannot be expected to do. Yeah, that's a great point. Very much tied into your like social justice, environmental justice example with Louisville and yeah, right. Heat Island and who is most right. affected by that. Yeah, right. And and after the hazard, like in the Hurricane Harvey example we had in Houston, there were you know obviously help. There was help from FEMA. You could fill in all your forms and you could get some money to help rebuild your house and you could claim this emergency insurance. But there were communities who don't speak very many, not very many of them could speak English fluently and who were not able to access that money because the forms were only in English. And so right. small small things like that, but it does add up to an impact on the community resilience. And that's something that we yeah. can no longer, you know, distinguish from the flooding. We need to look at both together. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, the last thing I had, and I don't, I don't know why this is last. I don't want to end on a negative note necessarily, but how do you think about climate skepticism or climate denial outright? Um, why is it polarizing? I mean, we've touched on many reasons, I think, so far on why it's polarizing, but yeah, um, I don't know. That's a difficult and, and complicated question, but yeah. I think there's a long history here in the United States of thinking about climate change as a somehow political and partisan issue and, and not not considering the science to be imperative, right? So like I mentioned before, you know, in the late 1980s and 1990s, NASA and the scientists there were making bold claims to the U.S. government that this um, client, that the climate change issue was going to become an issue in terms of the impact, the costs, the threat to our security, and so on. Nothing really happened. And there's been quite a large amount of misinformation deliberately distributed since that time. Um, to try to promote the continued interests of the fossil fuel industry, right? So there's that level of kind of interaction. But I think as well, we haven't educated our students in the school about it. We haven't, we're not really kind of communicating. The scientists have not communicated effectively to the population in general of how important this is and the effects are happening. And I think some communities, like let's go back to parts of Kentucky where those communities identify as coal mining communities and they feel a certain threat, right? Where you know, the argument is that coal is bad. And so mm-hmm. that it, it's very difficult to get on board with that, um, that idea. And so all of those things, I think, are in play, as well as just our, the structure of our economy is such that it, it doesn't encourage, you know, movements towards a kind of lower emission society. So all of those things, I think, are in play. But I, I have noticed that when I started teaching here about climate change, I would meet skeptics in my classroom and and they would say, I don't agree with this. I don't Mm -hmm. believe in this at all. Now they tell me my dad doesn't agree with this at all, but (laughs) but they are on board. (laughs) Like that. So they all are big believers and they join me because they haven't really learned enough about it to fully understand it. They would like to learn more. Um, and, and they, they go home and one of the assignments we have in the fall is write a letter to your old uncle at Thanksgiving so you can explain why they need to (laughs) take this seriously. And I think it is generational here now that Mm -hmm. our college students are all, you know, interested in and concerned about this particular aspect. I do think that coming out of the pandemic, um, you know, that it was for a while, it was a difficult subject to teach because it was just one more catastrophe that had to be dealt with. Um, But now I think, you know, we're in a good position to get back to the science and the data and, and understand what's happening. I think your point about communicating the scientific method, communicating how science works is fundamental. And um, I, I jotted down, you know, we need to do a better job of understanding and explaining consensus mm-hmm. um, and what consensus means to the general public, right? What's consensus among scientists? And if you, I think, I think if you misunderstand it, you know, then you're going to just latch on to one thing that, you know, it's not yeah. necessarily right or, you know, the disinformation. So, yeah, that, that's been quite persistent, right? That idea that if one person disagrees, it mm-hmm. might not be true. But I do think we've, we also have recently suffered through a culture where 
you know, people feel free to dismiss scientific mm-hmm. facts and theories uh, and just voice their own opinions. Like, for example, when President Trump decided that a hurricane path would go all the way to Alabama and the meteorologist <laughs> said, it's not going to Alabama, it's going up the East Coast. And, and he just got his Sharpie out. No, and he had drew, a Sharpie, so it's Yeah, legit. he just drew another cone and said, there we are. <laughs> and, and I think in the face of that, it, it is hard to then, you know, hammer home to students like, well, we really are... This is an evidence-based science, right? We're not, this is not about your beliefs or your political position. This is based on the data and the evidence. Um, And in the face of that, I think it's harder, excuse me, to do so. I was just going to, do you think there's this generational change like you were talking about because of being presented with, like, students are getting better at, um, at looking at data and understanding how data works and how science works? Or do you think it's, because students are seeing, um, or this generation is seeing the impacts of climate change. I mean, you know, we talked about all these things that are happening, and I mean, what? Yeah, I, I, I know it's probably not one or the other, but I get the sense that they're more aware of the impacts. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that their training in science is markedly different than it would have been a few years ago, because yeah, um, yeah. that's quite variable depending on which county you've come from. But um, I do think mm-hmm. they are understanding that the impacts are here and they're they're quite important. And I also think there's probably a lot of information coming if your social media is, includes mm-hmm. any of these youth movements or anything like that, because the the current you know important pressure on governments to do something is coming from youth movements, right? So it really is the high school and college age leaders, um, the young people across the world who are in their 20s that are leading that movement. And so they they are more aware of the situation and the crisis that, that it has evolved, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think just experiencing the effects has been a huge cause for shift in how it's talked about and how it's accepted now. Um, you talk about some of these early scientists in the 80s going and saying stuff you know like how long have we had the ipcc around how long have they been putting out these annual reports that say this is coming this is coming this is coming you know kyoto was like 90 early 90s i think yeah um and so my my undergrad was political science and environmental policy and so i did some papers way back when i was much younger, um, and and looked at some of these documents. And then I find myself decades later in this geology, in the shift in um, my my career and my background, and digging into some of this climate change stuff again. I think like one of the things that floored me was that this year it was this big deal that it's the first time that the IPCC actually says like it's happening, I think. Like it was a big deal. And I didn't understand why this was such a... Why it took so long? Well, or why it was to people so so shocking. They've been saying it for yeah. 20, 30 years. So why now is all of a sudden that we've, we've changed the language, I guess. And I think it's because we're seeing the effects. And so it's not so, politi- it's not so easy to dismiss it um, anymore. Like, I don't think we've gotten better. I think it's just smacking us in the face and we can't mm. deny it now. You know, I, I don't know. That's maybe a very negative viewpoint. But Doug, I don't, I don't know if you remember this. Um, we had a, a lecturer come here 15 years ago, maybe it was a professor from Princeton. So I don't know if it was like Haney lecture or maybe it may have been a lecture over in EES, but we, we had a, like a small meeting with him up in 222, a climate scientist from Princeton. I, I forget his name, but he made this analogy that has stuck with me for a long time. He, he was basically saying, what's more likely to happen that your house catches on fire and burns down to the ground, or we're going to continue to see these problems from climate change and there's going to be devastating impacts. And I was like, oh, well, it's not very likely that my house burns down to the ground tonight. That's would be pretty rare. And then he's like, yeah, right. That's correct. Like, but what do we pay for? Well, we pay that my, so my house, you know, I can get some money back if it does burn back down to the ground. So like, why aren't we paying for invest, you know, investing in something that's way more likely to happen? I don't know. Is that, does that seem right? (laughs) Right. Why are we not committing some small amount of our personal expenditure or national expenditure on that? For sure. That's a good question. We spend a lot of money on other things. Yeah. On, you know, recovering from the impacts of it yeah. rather than dealing with it. And I think people would deal with it if they 
were given a way to do so. I think a lot of particularly, you know, the high school and college students would absolutely agree that we need to do something. And that's always the toughest point in my courses when they look at me and say, why have you not fixed this? Right. Why are we not doing anything? The comment I almost made earlier and stopped myself was I've, I've heard different things on what you can do individually versus really you need the corporations, the companies you need. They, they have much bigger impact than we can have as individuals. Yeah. Um, and we talk about mandating it. Well, then you, you mandate, you know, emissions caps, but oh, now you can, you just pay the penalty if you go over because it's cheaper to do that. And mm. so it's still, I, th I think, what do you think individual versus like larger scale changes? Right. We clearly need both, right? So I think if, if individually we all were to vote with our wallets, right, and, and only buy local produce, then that might help. Um, you know, change some things in the food system, right? So you could push, if everyone joined together and did that, we could certainly force some changes. On the other hand, if if we tax those items coming in from New Zealand or whatever because of the carbon footprint, then that might change it too. So you've got different levels. And we I think we do need oversight at government and state level that would that would force certain, you know, standards. And then we do need corporations to make that choice. And many do. Because many at, at the level of corporations and cities, individual cities, there's a lot of changes happening. If we went out to California, we'd see some very kind of good standards of emissions and, and building codes and so on. And then we also need the individual choices and the cultural shift. And so they all have to come together and one supports the other because individuals on their own, you know, people will say, well, what does it matter if I buy a hybrid? You know, but if but if we all did that, then it would make a difference. But every little thing will help. And um we, we need to support, individuals will support these shifts by voting for people who want those policy shifts. And then the corporations and governments and cities will support the individuals by, for example, you know, helping subsidize solar panels or different choices like that. We're right at an hour. Um, Alice, it's been, it's, flew, it's flown really, by. Really good. You've been very generous yeah. with your time. Yeah. My pleasure. Thank <laughs> you for- It's been fun to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for being a guest. Um, we say this on every episode that, you know, there's lots of things we didn't get to and we can always have part, part twos, you know, so maybe we, maybe we do that uh, with yeah. you. That's that would really be fun. Good. Yeah. 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 Thank definitely. you. Alice, thank welcome. you. See everybody. Thanks. 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 This podcast was produced by the Kentucky Geological Survey at the University of Kentucky. Special thanks to Ben Corwin and Alicia Gregory at UK's Office of Research Communications for technical support. If you have any ideas for the show, email mcrawford at uky.edu. Thanks for listening.